ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're about to deep dive into a remarkable underwater world. Out of the corner of your eye, you can see a creature that's bright golden yellow. At first, it's not clear exactly what it is. It's only about the length of your hand. But as you look closely, you can see it's a seahorse. Seahorses have an incredible life cycle. They're monogamous, so once they find a mate, they stick together. And it's the males who give birth to hundreds of offspring from a pouch on their belly. This animal is so precious that several species are endangered. In an effort to protect them, scientists have built seahorse hotels under the water to give them a place to thrive. Dr David Harasti has dedicated much of his career to trying to unravel the mystery of seahorses. He studied so many of the creatures, he uses tiny tattoos so he can tell one seahorse from another. David, welcome to Conversations. Hi there, thanks for having me on. How hard is it to tattoo a seahorse, I need to know? It's a bit like an injection under the skin, so a bit of plastic paint, and we have different colours, so fluorescent reds and yellows and pinks, and it's just a little jab under the skin of the seahorse as you inject a bit of dye, and then it's permanent. So you can follow the same seahorse for the rest of their lives because they've got individual markings, and it's a really good way as a scientist that we can learn about how much they grow, where they move to, and how faithful they are to one another. It's an incredible marker then of each individual. Oh, it's an amazing way to tag underwater and have a sort of a non-intrusive impact on the seahorse. So we've tagged animals that we've followed for seven years in the wild, and that's a permanent record on that seahorse. Sometimes we put mixed colours, so one might have yellow, green and red on it, so it's a bit like a traffic light underwater with the three (laughs) spots. We name out some of our seahorses based on the tattoos as well. Have you ever had any mishaps yourself as you're trying to tattoo these creatures? When I first learnt how to use the uh, elastomer, the, the tattoo, I had to test myself. And so I gave myself a little injection under the skin and had a beautiful little red dot on there. But it's a permanent mark. So I realised, <laughs> like, oh, I probably shouldn't leave that there. So I, I had to push it back out of the little hole that I put it in. Otherwise, I would have had a red dot on my, my hand all, like, all my life. So the seahorses might be able to identify you, David, as well. Yeah, there's that person that keeps pestering us and looking at us all the time. (laughs) When did this fascination with seahorses really begin for you, David? Probably when I was at university. So I went to university. I always loved animals and I wanted to be a park ranger. And it was during my university degree that I actually took up snorkelling. And I just fell in love with snorkelling and the underwater world. And during that time, I changed my degree. And, you know, I, I saw my first seahorse in 1997 and... It captivated me then and, you know, that's sort of led on to my career and I've just always been interested in them and I've always been fascinated with this. Like you said, it's a mythical animal. What is it about them that really just grabs you? It's the mystery of them. You know, you see them underwater and they're, they're very shy and they're very camouflaged and they don't move much, but they're very, very mystique. And, you know, an animal that can be, you know, gold one day and it can turn black a couple of days <laughs> later and the male giving birth, it's just everything about this animal is, you know, it's a very unique animal. There's nothing else like it. And... Unfortunately, you know, they're declining around the world and that's what led to me wanting to do a whole heap of research on it to try and make sure that they don't decline and we don't want to have any species end up being extinct. Take us under the water in, in 1997 when you saw them for the first time. What, what happens? What goes through your mind? Oh, I just remember I was diving at Fly Point um, in Nelson Bay where I now live and I was just there on a, a day trip and I was blown away about the beautiful sponge gardens I was diving through. I remember seeing this orange sponge and I just saw this a line around it, and I looked at it closely, and that line turned out to be the tail of the seahorse. So when I moved my body around the other side of the sponge, there's the rest of this body. There's this big belly, and there's this horse's head, and I was like, my first ever seahorse underwater. You know, I was so captivated, and I I took a couple of photos, and, you know, that's my first encounter. I still use that photo to this day to show children and stuff, like this is, you know, how you can find a seahorse underwater, and it sucked me in then, that's for sure. So you, you've seen these gold-coloured uh, seahorses. How extraordinary do they look underwater? Well, the gold ones are my favourites because they're so brightly coloured. And what the seahorse can do is it can actually change its colour to match what it's living on. So if you find a gold seahorse, it's generally going to be found living on an orange or a yellow-coloured sponge. But what I've found over the years is that if a seahorse that's black moves onto orange sponges, it'll slowly turn gold. If you have a white seahorse move onto seagrass, it actually becomes a sort of a grey-green colour to blend in with the seagrass. 
And they need to do that because they're very, very slow. They're one of the slowest moving fish in the ocean. And when something wants to eat them, they don't have the ability to, to swim away. So they have to rely on their camouflage so they can't be detected. And I read that it's strange to say, but they're actually not great swimmers. Oh, they're terrible swimmers, right? <laughs> we swim, you know, if you're diving underwater, you want to swim like a dolphin. You want to be, you know, streamlined. If you're swimming upright like a seahorse, you're really, really slow. So the seahorses have a very, very small dorsal fin and it's tiny and it, it really can't propel them very fast. So when we do our work on the seahorses, people are like, oh, how do you catch them? I'm like, well, it's not hard. They don't swim very quick. We just grab them with our fingers and we do our work on them. Whereas if you work on other species of fish, you know, you need nets, et cetera. The seahorses are just so slow, anyone can catch them. What do they feel like when, they, when you hold them? They look really delicate underwater and they are still delicate. But when you grab them, they're very bony. They're very rigid and they're very hard. And I always find it very interesting that, you know, a lot of fish will eat them. And I'm like, why do you eat them? They're very bony and they're very hard. Like there's not a lot of nutritional value in them, but they seem to be a favourite snack of many animals. But, yeah, when you feel them for the first time, it's, it's rather surprising. You think they're going to be very soft, but, yeah, no, very hard body, very rigid. Why are they vertical? Vertical is their adaption. So with their tail, the tail is essential. Without the tail, the seahorse would be swept away in all the strong currents and, you know, when we have big swells. So they use that tail to curl around and latch onto something. And then the rest of their body needs to be upright because that's how they feed. Their head's at a 90-degree angle and it uses that head to flick and feed on all these microscopic creatures that we can't see. And the whole verticality is quite interesting because they're vertical when they're blending in with the seagrass, but when they're living you know, in amongst um, cauliflower corals or in the sponges, they'll actually be horizontal. They'll just be hiding amongst the branches. So they can be upside down sometimes when you find them. It depends on what they're doing and where they're living. And they have tiny little fins to help steer that are sort of up near their head, is that right? Yep. So they've got a couple of pectoral fins on on either side of their head, so like wing ears, basically, and they'll flutter those to steer left and right. So they use their dorsal fin for their propulsion, and then they move their head with their little wings to move to the left or right. But the thing is, they're still very, very slow. Like these, these fins are only you know, two or three millimetres long. Are they, are they well designed, would you say, fit for purpose? They're well designed from a perspective of us looking at them. They're a beautiful, magical creature. But for a perspective of swimming away and getting away from predators, they're, they're not. They're like a, a VW. They're, they're not very quick at all. <laughs> and their digestive system's kind of weird as well, David. So they're, they're pretty much eating all day. Yeah. So the seahorses don't have a proper stomach. So what happens is that because they have to eat a lot because they have no stomach to store food, they need to get a lot of energy. So they're constantly just snacking all day long. They might be eating 30, 40 times a day, picking off these microscopic shrimps and copepods that we can't see. But because they're eating all day, they're actually having to go to the toilet a lot. So underwater, a bit like a pooping machine because they're constantly having the food come through them and it's coming out. But they need to do that because they need the energy. Seahorses need energy so they can move away when necessary or especially during the breeding season when they're mating. When you decided to turn your attention in your studies towards seahorses, what kind of crossover did you see between the scientific literature and the mythology? Because people have always been fascinated by these creatures and coming up with ways to explain them. Well, the, the scientific genus for the seahorses is um, Hippocampus, and that in uh, Greek mythology means horse sea monster. So just its name, its scientific name, is already captivating. With the seahorses themselves, you know, they are that mythical animal and you can, you know, Neptune would ride them, you know, Poseidon's steed. And there's all these great stories, but they don't grow very big. This is a bit of a misconception. Sometimes people think that seals are one to two foot long. No, they're generally on average size, probably around six, seven centimetres. And the biggest seahorse we get is about 30 centimetres. So we don't get these huge seahorses that people can ride. What we actually have are these small seahorses that rely on camouflage for survival. How important is Australia to the global seahorse populations? Australia has one of the largest populations of seahorses in the world. We have at least 17 different species found here. And on the east coast of Australia, we predominantly have two. But occasionally we do get tropical visitors that come down from the Great Barrier Reef. Certain times of year, say when the water warms up from February through to about May, we have the East Australian current kick in, just like Finding Nemo. And we've had in Sydney Harbour, we've had tropical species from Indonesia and the Philippines turn up. So whilst we have you know, a lot of temperate water species in our great southern reef, 
in New South Wales as well, we can get these tropical species turn up. So it's very diverse. And Australia is very fortunate that all around the country, seahorses occur. All around Tasmania, all around the northern part of Australia, we have seahorses, which is amazing. When you started to look at these animals more closely, scientifically, when you're looking at the literature, how much knowledge was there or was there not a lot? There's never been a lot. And that's one of the reasons I sort of fell into my PhD on seahorses. In 2004, when the New South Wales government went to protect the seahorses, we actually realised there wasn't a lot we knew about them. There were some early studies in the 1990s here in Sydney Harbour, but that was it. We didn't know how many seahorses were in New South Wales. We didn't know what sort of seahorse species occurred. So that sort of led to me to address these questions of what seahorses do we have? Where do they live? How long do they live for? Um, where do they occur? And are the numbers really good? Yeah, that's where my PhD kicked off on because we needed to learn a lot more about seahorses. Because of this, how unusual and beautiful they are and this mythical background, for people who are not involved in your field, are you surprised by how much public affection there is towards these creatures and how much interest there is when you're doing your work? I always say whenever I give talks or people mention seahorses, everybody loves seahorses. Like, I do a lot of work on sharks. Not everyone loves sharks. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> no. So you, you hear lots of people say bad things about sharks, but in all my years, I've never, ever heard one person say a bad thing about a seahorse. You don't say, oh, there's a horrible seahorse or that seahorse just bit me. There's nothing like that. It's just a, this mythical animal underwater that captivates people. And little children are fascinated by them. You know, Finding Nemo had the little seahorse in that that everyone loved. So it's always a good, happy positive story and, you know, they don't cause trouble. <laughs> They're a nice animal. <laughs> <laughs> With your PhD, you decided to study what's known as the White's Seahorse, which is named after the Surgeon General of the First Fleet. Tell me about this particular seahorse. So the White's Seahorse um, is also known as the Sydney Seahorse because it was first found here in Sydney Harbour and it was named after John White, the Surgeon General from the First Fleet. And that species was one of the first seahorses studied in the world in the, in the mid-1990s, but we still didn't know a lot about it. And part of my project, my research, I looked at where it occurred in Australia. We actually first thought it occurred in the Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea. turns out that there are other species, and what I've shown is that the species is actually endemic to the east coast of Australia. We find it from Harvey Bay all the way down to about Jarvis Bay. But Sydney Harbour and Port Stephens, they are the two hotspots for that seahorse. So that's where I did a lot of my research, especially in Sydney Harbour on the protective swimming nets that we have at sites such as um, Clifton Gardens and Manly, and then up in Port Stevens in their natural habitats where they used to la- live in these beautiful soft corals and sponge garden habitats. What do they look like, these particular seahorse? Generally, they're not white, which is very unusual <laughs> given its name. Um, they range in size. Their average size would probably be about eight centimetres, and the biggest they grow would be about 15 Uh, The work that I've done shows that they live for up to seven years in the wild and they look like every other typical seahorse, you know, head of the horse, body of a sea monster. Um, They've got the long tail that they use to latch onto the Posidonia seagrass and curl onto sponges. And then in Sydney Harbour, we find them with their tails curled around those swimming nets. The issue with that seahorse is it's very reliant on its habitats because it doesn't move much. It's a very territorial sort of species. It'll find its sort of happy place to live and it stays there. So a woman called Amanda Vincent in the 1990s was doing some research and discovered that seahorses pair up and they stay together. What do we know? She did all her work in Watson's Bay in Sydney Harbour and she was the first one to show that seahorses are monogamous. So over the breeding season for the white seahorse, which is generally around September, October, she was showing that the animals would pair up and then they'd spend the next five, six months together breeding throughout that entire breeding season. You know, it's a beautiful affair. Every morning, the male and the female would come together. They do their little mating dance in the water column where they dance up into the water about two or three feet off the the seafloor and they change their colours and they spin around, curl their tails around and actually you see them sometimes, they look like a love heart with the heads bowed in and the tails together. It is. It's (laughs) like this really romantic thing to see. And they would do that pretty much every day during the breeding season and if the male wasn't pregnant at the time, the female would transfer her eggs into his pouch and, you know, he'd fertilise them and he'd become pregnant. And even whilst he's pregnant, they'd still do that mating dance. Why do they keep doing that if they're already together? I think it's a cement of their relationship and it shows to all the other seahorses in the area that we're to pair, we're together. So they're sort of like, it's like a bit of a dance. So if there's any other females watching, they're like, oh no, I can't have that one because he's already taken. 
there's sort of ground truthing the area, say this is where we are, this is where we belong and this is where we're mating and dancing together. So who chooses who? Do the females choose the males or the other way around? It's a bit of both. So what I've shown from my research is if a pair bond separates, the female will go away and look for another male. But if the male loses his female, he'll actually stay still and he'll wait for other females to come in and then he'll choose one that's... Generally, they try and choose one that's a similar size. Sometimes you see weird things where you'll have like a seahorse that's 10 centimetres in height and you'll be mating with like a five centimetre seahorse. So there's an age difference of probably three years to like eight months old. But yeah, generally they always try and pair up with someone of a similar size. What happens when one of the seahorses dies? Do they mourn the other one? You'd like to think that they would mourn, but you know, in the nature, everyone needs to get on, we need to keep breeding. So if a male loses his female partner and another female will move in, they could be mating again within two or three days. As long as her egg cycle is in tune with his pouch, it'll keep going. Normally what will happen, though, is if you lose a male, then the female has to go and find another male on on an area. The problem is, during the breeding season, they're already paired up. So you often see females coming in and interrupting another male and a female, and the the paired-up female will have to chase off this new female coming into her territory trying to take her boyfriend... So I've seen females wrestle. The paired-up female will chase the other female out and it's kind of a bit of headbutting action. They don't have arms to push and shove, so they have to use their heads to push each other away. And it's kind of funny to see, but, you know, it's part of nature. It's where, you know, I'm defending my male and defending my territory. So the males will watch the females fight it out? Yeah, pretty much they do. And it's like (laughs) you must feel pretty good as a male to see sometimes two or three females in your area all wanting to mate with you and, you know, he's got the one that he's chosen and, you know, she'll defend defend him to stay with him. Are the females more dominant then than the males? The females are much more active than the males. The males have to save energy for the pregnancy, so they'll spend a lot of time just living on the same sponge and not moving much, whereas the females will roam around a lot more, and my research showed that females move a lot more than the males, and that's probably because they're actually, if they lose a mate or they're looking for mates, they have to travel further. But generally when they pair up, what you'll find is that during the breeding season, they'll be no more than, say, two, three metres apart from one another during that entire six-month period. And at night time, if you dive on them, you'd sometimes just find them snuggling up on a sponge together with their tails wrapped around each other. And they, they care for one another. It's, it's probably one of the few marine animals where sort of they fall in love. It's, it's, yeah, it's quite good. What do you think when you see them snuggled up together? I, that's how I'd end up, like, naming my pairs. So, you know, I'd have Grandpa and Goldilocks became a pair because I always found them on the same sponge at night. And then there was... Dawn and Dusk, a famous pair of seahorses I had in Port Stephen. So by seeing them paired up, I often would give them names and it made it easier for me to sort of follow them. The only problem is when you name your animals underwater, sometimes they disappear and you have to sort of bond with them because you've named them and you've been seeing them so often. So when they disappear, it's kind of sad. Like you go, oh, where's Dusk today? And Dusk is gone. And you're like, oh, oh no. <laughs> I don't know where Dusk went. And then, you know, sometimes there might be an octopus nearby or another fish and you're like, oh, this is not good. So you've become quite attached to them by the sounds of it, David. You do. And like like Dawn, which was a, a beautiful gold seahorse up in Port Stephens, um, she became a bit of a local celebrity. Divers have been following her for almost seven years and she lived on this sponge area and she didn't move much. She stayed there for six years and the greatest distance she moved was 30 metres. But we had divers from Sydney come and see her. I had friends that came over from Palau that had to go and dive to see Dawn. And then, unfortunately, the floods in 2021 happened and, you know, Dawn's habitats, the sponges disappeared and then we lost Dawn as well. And that's probably the first time I actually got... I couldn't dive for six weeks, I think it was, because of the floods. And when I went back there to see Dawn and she was gone, that was probably one of the first times I got really emotional where I'd lost someone I'd been visiting monthly for, say, six years. So, yeah, you, you get that bond and then it's quite saddening when they disappear. Did that surprise you? I was surprised that I didn't find her after the floods, but when I got out there to where she lived and I saw that there was no habitats left and everything, all the sponges were dead and the corals had gone, it was like, oh, this isn't going to be good. And then, I, yeah, I couldn't find her. I spent you know an hour and a half underwater. We had other people looking for her as well and she was never seen again. So it wasn't just me that got quite sad and by it. There's lots of local divers that really, you know, had this bond of dawn. And so when they couldn't find her, it was, yeah, it was, it's just one of those things. You get sad, but then, you know, other seahorses will hopefully turn up. You can name them and you'll start again. Why did she become so famous? Probably because she was the first seahorse that, you know, I tagged her, I think it was in 2000 and 
eight, I think, I think it was. And then we followed her for seven, eight years. So because she stayed in the same spot, everyone knew about it. And she, we actually put in a seahorse hotel for her that she ended up living on the hotel and everyone knew where to find her. And because she was a really big gold seahorse, she was almost 16 centimetres long before she passed away. And she's so she's so <laughs> photogenic because she was always used to me. So when other divers are going to photograph, she just posed. And then she had a beautiful black boyfriend that we called Dusk. And <laughs> they were together for three years. It was a nice story and everyone liked to go and see him. What was it like for you being underwater, just observing her, given that you got to know her so well? She probably got tired of me constantly checking on her. I was a diver on her once a month and checking on her. But she's so used to me. And, you know, I say to people that the seahorse is one of the few animals that you can shake hands with. Because if you hold out your fingers, hands in front of them, quite often they'll swim over to you and they'll curl your tail around it if they're inquisitive. And she would do that with me. So there I would be underwater and she'd have a tail curl around my finger. I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. Do you see much difference in behaviour from one seahorse to another? These seahorses that you have tattooed, can you see that they have different characteristics or behaviour? Some are more shy than others, definitely. So some, you know, you'll tag and you won't see them for a while. And that's because they spend a lot of their time hiding in amongst the corals and the cauliflowers. Whereas others, like there's one called Big Red and Grandpa, they're always out in the open. Like they were always in the same spot on top of the sponge and I'd see them. And because they got used to divers, because there's a popular dive site in Nelson Bay, they're always there and they didn't shy away. So you could quite happily take video or photos of them. And I could do research on them quite easily. I could look at their behaviour. Whereas others are a bit more timid, a bit more shy, and it's probably just like people as well. You know, some people are flamboyant and out there just like a brightly gold-coloured seahorse. And then you've got some, you know, shy seahorses that just like to be a bit more recluse. What did people notice with Dawn's partner, Dusk, after she died? Was he still around? No, we actually lost Dusk beforehand. So Dusk had disappeared about a year before. And whilst that was saddening, the interesting thing that Dawn got a new boyfriend that was about half her age and um, he looked quite sprightly and he was, um, yeah, he was, a, he was a little bit of a stallion seahorse, we'll say, and she was doing very well. So everyone was really pr- very happy. I wouldn't say proud, but everyone was very happy to see that she'd moved on. So Dawn had kind of traded up by the sounds of it. Very much. And she had to move away a little bit, so she probably moved about 10 metres or so to find this new male. And when we found them again, was that she'd moved and saw her with a new boyfriend. I was like, oh, you go, girl. <laughs> <laughs> so in this, these years that you were following her, what kind of size of area was she roaming in? It was, it was pretty small, David. Oh, it was tiny. It would have been probably about a patch of, say, 10 square metres. And Her whole life. Her whole life, yep. And it was these beautiful sponge gardens that we had in about a depth of eight metres um, in Nelson Bay's dive site called a Pipeline. And... I put a seahorse hotel in there for her because there's been some sand movement and sand to cover some sponge. So we put a hotel in there. Within a month, she was living on the hotel. So we knew where to find her. It was really easy. But then when the floods came through and then everything out there died, it, that was the end of it. What sort of reaction was there from the community when they realised that Dawn had died? <laughs> everyone was asking me where she was. And I'm like, I can't find her. I'm like, but then everyone made a concerted effort to go and look for her. So I had some of my diving colleagues. I had some of my students... We all went looking for her and we covered huge errors and you know, she was never never seen again. But, you know, that's part of the natural environment. Sometimes we lose animals that we develop bonds with and hopefully over time we'll see more seahorses turn up. We'll get another beautiful gold female seahorse there and we'll call her Dawn Junior or Goldie or something else. When the floods started, how worried were you for the seahorses knowing what you know about the, the environment that they need? To be honest, when we had the floods, I didn't even actually put much thought into it being a problem because we'd never seen something like this happen before. Those flood events in 2021 and 2022 were unprecedented. We'd never had that much fresh water in. I'd seen the Pasha Balka storm, I think it was the late 2000s. I'd seen a flood then, but all the seahorses were fine. They did really well, but it wasn't such a huge storm event. So when I did finally get back in the water, once the visibility cleared up and I could see I was stunned. It's like even just thinking about it now, like how depressing it was to go in the water and just see everything was dead. Like there was nothing alive. All the sea grasses, all the sites that I'd go to where there'd be a sponge outcrop here and there's a patch of Posidonia seagrass there, it was all gone. All my landmarks underwater, all my reference points, everything had disappeared. So I remember just getting out of the water and I was just, I was devastated. I was really, really upset. And I remember going home to my wife, just going, everything's dead. There's no seahorses left. There's no corals left. There's no seagrass left. 
So, yeah, that was pretty hard hitting, especially, you know, this is a site that I dived a thousand times or so in Port Stephens and to see it change like that within a, a space of six months, yes, yeah, it's, it's still, I find it very hard to go dive into this day recreationally because it doesn't look anything like it used to 20 years ago. It sounds like there's a lot of emotion there for you, David. Yeah, like even just thinking about it now, like I've got small children and, you know, I, I take my 13-year-old diving. He doesn't see anything like it used to be. It's probably 10% of what it was, say, in the 20, 20 years ago. And I moved to Port Stevens because of diving. That's the reason why I moved there and, you know, we've worked. But the primary reason is because I wanted to go scuba diving all the time. So now on the weekends, like I normally would go diving and I just can't bring myself to do it now because it just doesn't look like it used to. But, you know, we're doing things and, you know, we've got projects in place. We're trying to restore the habitats. We're putting in the seahorse hotels and we're trying to, you know, grow corals to put back in the wild. So I'm optimistic that, you know, over the next couple of years we can actually start to recover everything. Broadcast. Podcast. This is Conversations with Sally Sara. Find more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. David, you've been talking a little bit about these seahorse hotels which are under the water. What do they look like? Okay, so the Seahorse Hotel is a concept that I came up with must have been about 2016, 17, I think it was. And what was happening in Port Stephens is a lot of the seahorse habitats, so the sponges and the corals, were starting to disappear because of sand. Sand was moving into port and smothering them. And then what I'd find every now and then would be these old lost fish traps, just, you know, metal frames that had been down for many years. But over these years, they just become these beautiful magnets for marine growth. So they were covered in sponges and they were covered in algae and kelp. And then every now and then I'd find a seahorse living on one of these old fish traps. And it made me think, well, maybe we can purposely build something to help the seahorses when we've lost their habitats. So I came up with a design that we called Seahorse Hotels. And the idea is, you know, we put them in the water. They're constructed like a bit like a cage. They're, it's kind of mesh, isn't it? It's a mesh, yeah. Mm. It's, it's a one metre by one metre cube mesh. And what happens is the marine growth will grow on them. And when that growth gets, you know, nice and dense and there's lots of little critters living on there, like food for seahorses, the seahorses will move on there. And we did an experiment in 2018 and we put down 18 seahorse hotels and we didn't know what was going to happen. So we thought, hopefully it works. <laughs> Within three months, we had, I think it was about 20 seahorses moved on there within three months. And after six months, we had 63 individual seahorses move on to their adults and juveniles. And not only that, they all started breeding on the hotels. <laughs> That's so, what happens in hotels sometimes, yeah. David. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was like really, and it was good because we got to see them go through stages of these barren steel cages, slowly accumulate all this marine growth, the seahorses would turn up. The seahorses would be changing colour to match what they're living on the hotels. You could see them feeding on all the little copepods and amphipods on them. Not just so they a bit like a pub. They're an underwater meeting area. So then, you know, a male seahorse and a female would get together in the same hotel and go, all right, well, we're here. Let's get, get it together and they'd pair up. So it was a huge success. And we did learn some lessons back then that we used aluminium originally, but we found that the aluminium broke down too quickly in the marine environment. So now we use a mild steel, which will last longer. And the idea is through over time, that steel will eventually rust away and break down because we don't use any plastic or anything. It's all this mould steel. And then what will be left behind once that metal rusts away is, is all the beautiful growth and the sponges, when they collapse, will be left behind for the seahorses. So basically started with an artificial habitat and then we'll leave behind this beautiful natural habitat. There's something really lovely about that, isn't it, is it kind of dissolves and disappears and nature takes over from it. Yeah, and it's we've got some that we've had up there now for four years, and you can't even tell that they were a seahorse hotel anymore. They were just this beautiful, ginormous block and sponges and kelp and algae. So we did find the floods, the ones we had in the shallow waters, they didn't do so well because all that marine growth in the shallows died. 
but the ones that we had in the deeper water, anything below 10 metres actually did really well because the salt water still was down at that depth. The fresh water hadn't affected them. So the ones that we had deeper are still doing really well and still going strong. So does Australia get to add this to the list of the great inventions we've given to the world from Hills Hoist to, to Seahorse <laughs> Hotels now? <laughs> well, they are getting more popular and I do get lots of requests from all around the world. And I know that they've been put into places like Greece, they've gone wow. into Portugal. I know um, we've had resorts, diving resorts in Indonesia and the Philippines put them into attract seahorses. So they're becoming more and more popular. The thing is, though, they're not they're not the solution. The actual solution would be to protect the natural habitats before you lose them. They're sort of like a recovery tool that we can use to help recover populations before those natural habitats come back. What do we know about why the seahorses are attracted to them? Do they feel safe in there? Well, it's a bit of the thing with the white seahorse. We've done enough experiments over the years to show that they actually really like artificial structures. So in Sydney, That's weird. It is very weird. So in Sydney Harbour, for example, they have seagrass to live on and they have kelp to live on, but they actively choose to live on our swimming nets. So the swimming nets under the jetties at Clifton Gardens and Manly Net, the seahorses are more likely to be found there than they are in their natural habitats. And I think it's because those nets get so much growth and crusting on them. There's so much food there. There's all these amazing copepods, amphipods, mice and shrimp. It's like, it's like a smorgasbord for the seahorses. And not only that, all that growth provides really good camouflage for them. So it's, a swimming net is actually amazingly a great habitat for a seahorse. You were lucky enough to go for a quick dive this morning. I was very jealous. I was in the office. You were out having a look around. You, you were looking at some of these seahorse hotels this morning and members of the public have kind of got to know what they are as well. Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago we had this big release of baby seahorses that were raised in captivity at the Sydney Institute of Marine Science down at Chowder Bay and we released 380 of these captive bred seahorses and we called them super seahorses. We'd done a lot of experiments in the lab with a PhD student of mine, and he showed that if you feed them in rich food and you grow them at a warmer water temperature, they grow much bigger, faster, stronger. So when I released these seahorses three weeks ago, I was so blown away about the size of them. They're like, a, like in a feedlot or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> they were so big, strong and healthy. And when we released them, it got a huge amount of publicity. And, you know, I had friends in the UK and in the United States going, we just saw you on TV in the US and in the UK releasing seahorses. Everyone's fascinated by seahorses. So I've been checking on these with my PhD student, Mitch, and what we're finding is that these super seahorses are doing really well. We release them on the net, we release some on the hotels, but there's 380 of them. And because there's so many of them, they're just spreading out. So people are finding them in the shallows when you walk into the water. We're finding them down on the jetty pylons now. Everywhere I look at Chowder Bay this morning, there's a seahorse somewhere. So I'm like, wow, this has really worked. This is a good, this is a good thing. What are the predators for seahorses? Well, that's, I have a love-hate relationship with a couple of animals underwater. And, and the first one's the octopus. So Octopus are actually, you know, they're a very, very intelligent animal, very. very smart, but they're actually one of the more ferocious predators of seahorses that we have. And I'll tell you a little story here. I had a beautiful red seahorse up in Port Stephens called George, and I used to visit George for about, probably about two years. And one day George was gone and nearby I found an octopus living in a bottle. And what I found outside the octopus's bottle, this bottle he was living in, was the body of the seahorse and the head separate from the body just sitting there. I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is not good. And then, you know, I went to grab the body of the seahorse and I could see it was George because it had the two tattoos on it. And then the octopus actually fought me for the body and the octopus wouldn't give up the body. It took the body back into his bottle and I ended up taking George's head and freezing him for genetic analysis. But to see one of my favourite animals that had been decapitated, yeah, a bit like a godfather scene... It was really disturbing. And then I've seen, you know, blue ring octopus attack them. I've had to force octopus away from them. So, yeah, it's a definitely a love-hate relationship with them. And I remember there's another animal that likes to eat them, and that's the um, anglerfish. So remember in Finding Nemo, the anglerfish dangles his lure and uh, Nemo gets attracted to the light. Well, we have anglerfish that live here that walk on the bottom and they stalk the seahorse. So one day I was watching in the shallows this anglerfish walking up to the seahorse and stalking it. And just as it was close enough to strike, and I was taking photos, and I was like, oh, I'm going to get an amazing photo here. And just as the anglerfish went to eat the seahorse, something just said, just, no, don't let it happen. And my conscience just kicked in, so I ended up, you know, slapping the anglerfish on the head, pushing him away, and I picked up my seahorse, and I swam the seahorse away. 
So I'm never ever going to get that, you know, that natural wildlife photography of the year award of the predator and the prey, you know, happening. Do you feel torn with that sometimes between observing what's happening and wanting to to intervene? As a scientist, I should just watch, right? It's always about watch and learn. And I've watched and learned enough to see that an octopus will eat a seahorse, an anglerfish will eat a seahorse. I know that already. So now it's just 100% I'm intervening. (laughs) You know, the seahorse that I work on is an endangered species. We don't really want to be losing more of them. Yeah, I know that, you know, natural selection and life goes on, but... If I can interfere to stop a poor seahorse getting eaten, then I'm going to choose to do that every single time. As you say, David, we know that octopus are very, very bright, very intelligent. What do we know about how bright seahorses are? We think seahorses are pretty intelligent. They've evolved into this amazing mythical animal. They've been around for millions of years. How smart they are, we're not sure, because they're always in the same spot. They don't do much. They're always just clinging onto something. Eating. Eating, constantly eating. But when you think about what they do during the mating season and they pair up, and not only do they pair for one mating season, they'll pair for three or four mating seasons, to me that shows that they are pretty intelligent. They know that they've met a lifelong partner. They know that they're compatible. They know that they've been you know, doing really well by breeding together. So that shows to me that they're pretty switched on and they know that you know, what they're doing is the right thing. What is going on in nature that the males are having the babies? It's crazy, isn't it? So the male seahorse is the only animal in the world which actually gives proper birth. So the female transfers her eggs into his pouch, which are then fertilised, and that male will hold those babies for about three weeks. And when he gives birth, he pops them out, and labour can be quite exhausting for a seahorse. It can take, you know, two, two hours or so, two, three hours. He's just popping out the babies, and he'll pop out maybe up to 150 at a time. But what will happen then, he's pretty exhausted, the female will come over, and if she can, she'll try and impregnate him again straight away. <laughs> so he doesn't actually... They're ruthless, these seahorse <laughs> women, aren't they? He doesn't get much of a break. <laughs> now, if she doesn't impregnate him that same day he gave birth, definitely next morning, it's on. She will impregnate him and he'll start again the whole cycle. Another three weeks he'll be pregnant and he'll give birth. And over the breeding season, that female might impregnate him up to eight times. So it's a long, constant six months of breeding for that poor male seahorse. So when winter comes, he doesn't want to do any more. He just wants to rest, recover his energy, relax for six months, chill out a bit, and then it's all going to start again. What's the rate of carnage for these baby seahorses? If he's having 150-odd, they must be losing a lot. Yeah, the survival rate of baby seahorses, unfortunately, is very, very low. We don't know the exact number, but I always say it's probably around 1% to 5% survive. And the reason for that is, like, when the male's popping out the seahorses, they come out, they're about 8 millimetres to a centimetre long, they're fully formed. They look like these little crunchy sort of underwater snacks. They do. And I sort of refer to them, you know, they're underwater Maltesers. They're small and crunchy and everyone wants to eat them. So all these Maltesers pop out and all the fish come in and they feed on them. So the survival of the baby seahorses is, is very low. So the idea of our breeding program that we have um, with New South Wales DPI is that, and Sea Life and Sydney Institute of Marine Science is that we'll raise them in captivity to a much bigger size so that when we do release them at, say, five, six centimetres long, they've got a much greater chance of survival. And so far that's shown, shown to be effective where we've had, you know, 20% survival after six months rather than just, say, 1%. So these, especially these super seahorses that you're breeding are much more robust when you release them? Way more robust now. So the ones that I saw this morning are all looking really big and healthy. They've grown more since we've released them. There was a black anglerfish living in one of the hotels that I was very worried about this morning. <laughs> Did he get kicked out? He was temporarily relocated. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they're doing really well. So we'll now monitor them now for the next 12 months and assess their survival. But so far from what I've seen, it's really encouraging. Could this be, I mean, it's not the answer to all the problems that the seahorses are facing, but could this technique make a bit of a difference, do you think? It can definitely make a difference. So. There's so many things that we're doing with the New South Wales government's initiative to protect the seahorse, like there's a captive breeding program, there's the artificial habitats such as the seahorse hotels, but they're just some of the tools that we're using. Firstly, we've got to try and slow down the rate of loss of our natural habitats. So, you know, it's very hard to control flood events, but there's other things that people can do that can minimise damage to habitats such as, you know, anchoring in seagrasses or putting a mooring line in sponge gardens. If we can protect what we've got already, that'll help the seahorse populations. And the way I say to people is um, the seahorses are a really good canary of our ocean. I was going to ask you that. Mm. Yeah, they're a really good indicator of environmental health. So if you've got seahorses in the area, it means that you've got a really healthy marine environment. It means your water quality is good. It means you've got good marine habitats. If there's good marine habitats, it means there's going to be lots of marine life. 
if you lose all the habitats, then you lose the seahorse. It's as simple as that. So, you know, they are really good indicators to show if we have seahorses living somewhere like Clifton Gardens at Chowder Bay, that's a really good population, means the habitats there are doing pretty well. Port Stephens at the moment, where I find it very hard to find seahorses, we know that that marine environment hasn't recovered from the floods. Will it? I'm really hopeful that it will. I don't want to see it not recover because that would just be devastating, especially for all the local dive community that have been diving, you know, these sites for 20 years. And you have to be optimistic and think that's going to come back. And we've never had floods like we had, so we don't know if they can recover. But we're slowly starting to see signs of recovery. So some of the seagrass is starting to come back. The algaes are growing. Some of the sponges are coming back. We've put in a lot of seahorse hotels there. There's now 60 seahorse hotels in Port Stephens. It's a lot of hotels. It's a lot of hotels. We've even made some double stories. So we've got double story hotels. Um, I'm really hopeful by the helping hand that we're giving with the hotels for the seahorses that will slowly start to see the population recover. But critically, over the next 12 months, if we can release some more captive breast seahorses onto the hotels in Port Stephens, hopefully that'll lead to you know population recovery. What's it like for you this morning when you're out there diving and you're seeing these super seahorses doing so well and, and growing? It must really lift you. It's really encouraging to see that they're still there. So we've had some seahorses release where we release smaller seahorses and they haven't done so well. Actually, we couldn't find them after the release and that's happened a couple of times. So we've learned now we need to make seahorses bigger before we release them. So that's been a really good scientific... How, how do you make them bigger? The team at Sydney Institute of Marine Science did an amazing job by, you know, running them at really warm water temperature, so above 23 degrees, feeding them enriched shrimp, which is called artemia, and feeding them lots. They're feeding them two or three times a day. So these seahorses just got big and healthy and strong. And then when we released them, you know, the difference between when we released the small ones that were six months old and these guys that were only four months old and triple the size, it was amazing. And that's why I'm really confident it's going to, we're going to do really well in the future. We've, we've done some really good research and we've learned from our mistakes and we're learning how to breed them in bigger, better, stronger. Do these have tattoos as well, these big fellas? All the seahorses that released were tattooed. And it's a bit harder when you tag the, the smaller ones. So, you know, in the wild, when you're tagging them 10 centimetres, it's really easy. Like, they're big. And, but when you've got these small ones, only five centimetres in your hand, and you're getting a bit old and your eyes start starting to go, and just, it gets a little bit harder to put those tattoos in. But, yeah, my student Mitch and I, we managed to tag all 350 of them that we released, so... Yeah, they're out there with tags. And the cool thing about it now is because they've got such interest with the Sydney diving community, they're actually posting all their photographs on social media when they find one of our tag seahorses. So there's one with a red dot there, there's one with a blue dot there. So we've got like little celebrities down there and everyone's sharing that with us. So we're actually getting data from the citizen scientists. So it's working really well. What does the timeline look like for seahorses if there's not change because there has been decline in, in populations. What, what does it look like in 10 years from now, David? If we don't have habitats coming back and if we don't have these artificial habitats in place, we may see the seahorse decline continue. So I'll give you an example. Port Stephens in the mid-2000s when I was diving, I'd see 20 to 30 seahorses a dive. When they got listed as an endangered species around 2020 before the floods, you know, I'd see five or six a dive. Since the floods this year, if I find one on a dive, I'm happy. So the numbers are going in a very downward trajectory. But by introducing all these recovery actions, such as the hotels, by hopefully getting the, soft, the endangered soft corals to grow for them to live on again, by transplanting Posidonia seagrass, by releasing the babies back into what, I'm really hopeful we'll reverse that decline. I have to be hopeful. You know, seahorses can recover very quickly. We've seen that. We've seen natural population declines where they've gone from 30 on a dive down to five, but then in a year's time you'd see 30 again. Because they breed so quickly. Because they breed so quickly. Those blokes are busy. Yeah. And if you've got the habitats there for the babies to go and hide in, which in this case would be the seahorse hotels, those little babies can go and hide in hotels away from the predators. I'm really hopeful that they'll grow to be, you know, big and large and then within. They mature very early. So they become mature at six months. You can tell if they're a male or female. But at nine months, they're reproducing. So they reproduce very quickly. And a male seahorse over a breeding season could give birth as many as a 1,000 animals. So you take, you know, 1% to 5% survival. Every animal, you know, we can have enough coming back into wild, but we just need the habitats for them to live on. If you're going into some of those areas where things have declined, like some of those spots in Port Stephens, does it rest heavily on you sometimes? It does. 
And, you know, a really good example of that is after the floods when I dived and, you know, I got quite sad of doing it. And my son wanted to go diving. And, you know, he's, a, he's only young. He was 12 when went up last year. And I found it really hard to take him for the dive because it was really saddening that I couldn't show him what it used to look like. But then when I did take him, it was these other smaller things that would captivate him. So there'd be a wobbegong shark or there'd be some cuttlefish or there'd be a big flathead. So even though we, I couldn't find him seahorses, there's still other things in that marine environment in Port Stephens that are fascinating for other people. It's stuff that I've seen a thousand times before. But for a young kid to go and see all that, that really encouraged me. So there's still hope for it. And, you know, lots of divers are still coming to Port Stephens and they still love seeing what's there. You've been researching in this field for quite some time. I understand you've had, this is an honour that not many people get, you've had a sea slug named after you, David. I have. I've been very fortunate over the last 10 years. I've actually had three different marine species named after me. And the sea slug was the first one. And it's, it's not the most attractive species. Good-hearted, is it? <laughs> yeah, I say that kindly. It, it grows about a centimetre long and it's sort of a whitish-brown colour with little brown dots and warts all over it. And it's not the most attractive, glamorous sea slug, but, you know, it's called Ocheena harastii, so... I'm very proud of that and I'm very happy that I was fortunate enough to have a, a warty sea slug named after me. And, and a worm as well. Oh, the worm's cool. I'm very proud of my worm. So the worm I first discovered in the early 2000s up in Nelson Bay and it lives in the shallows and it lives in, lives in the sand. It lives in like a little burrow. And I took some photos and video and I sent it to the expert Australian Museum, Pat Hutchings, and she said to me, you need to get me a specimen. I was like, oh, okay. I'm just very naive. Going, yeah, I was going to catch one wow, you just can't catch it. Every time I try and put my hand near it, it'd go down the burrow. I tried digging like a hole, like I could never find it. So it wasn't until about 2011, after doing a lot of research with fish, we're using these baited videos where you put down some bait in a bag and I watch all the fish come in. I'm like, oh, maybe this worm will like meat. So me and my dive buddy, we went out there and we, we dangled a pilchard in front of the hole and the worm was interested. So I would pull the... Um, Pilched away from the hole, dragged the worm out. So when the worm came out far enough, my dive buddy was behind and he'd quickly grab it. We must have had about 50 attempts where every time we had to grab it, the worm was so quick back down the hole. But he finally grabbed it and he kept pulling it out of the hole. And I was like, oh, this thing's huge. And it kept stretching and stretching. It must have been close to two metres stretched out. And I'm like, this is way longer than I thought. And then like a giant elastic band, it shot out hit him in the face, it's wrapped around curling up in his hair and in his regulator and he's blowing bubbles everywhere and freaking out, signalling at me. And I had the container to put it in, but at the time I was I was just laughing so hard <laughs> at my buddy getting attacked by this ferocious worm. <laughs> Finally, you know, I, I got it into the jar and it went off to the Australian Museum in 2010. We, we actually caught two specimens for him and then... It took a long time because there's not a lot of taxonomists in Australia and they're, they're very, very busy and there's, there's not a lot of them around. So finally it got named and last year they were kind enough to name it after me. So I've got this huge bobbit-type worm named after me, Eunice harastii, that grows to just over a metre long. You know, I always just think of this worm as this alien-like creature, but I've seen it attacking someone, so it's always <laughs> special to me. Not to be messed with. Are we finding new species of seahorses still? We are. So not the big-bodied seahorses, but what we're finding still are these little pygmy seahorses. So if you have a little look at your, your pinky finger and halve that, your fingernail, we're finding seahorses are like six, seven millimetres tall. That tiny? Yeah, tiny little pygmy seahorses that live on like gorgonian fans and algae. And a couple of years ago, I went over to South Africa to uh, Sudwana to look for a brand new species of pygmy seahorse there and we collected two specimens and that only recently just got named, so Hippocampus nalu. And then we had another one from Japan, Hippocampus japigyu. So the, there's still things to be discovered in the marine world all the time, not just seahorses, like there's nudibranchs, there's worms, there's fish. There's so much for us still to discover and learn. Ideally, one day I'm going to find this really big seahorse somewhere, maybe under Antarctica, I don't know, that no one's ever seen and I'll have my Hippocampus harastii. That would be amazing. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but, you know, I'll still do my bit now by doing as much as we can to protect them and conserve them. Are you hopeful about the future of seahorses? Yeah, I am. You know, we still have problems all around the world. We have problems of overfishing the seahorses. We have the habitat loss and destruction. But we have such good community support for them. We've had good government support for them. We have... Um, 
a lot of buy-in because, as, you, as you've said, everyone loves seahorses. So we don't want to see them disappear. So by doing all this work, captive breeding programs, artificial habitats, restoring natural habitats, we have to be positive. You don't want to lose the seahorse. If we lose all the seahorse from ocean, it means we've got a really, really big problem. Climate change worries me. So marine heat waves, for example, the impact they're going to have in the future. But, you know, seahorses, we know that they can be hardy, but they also can be very susceptible. So if we lose these habitats, we are going to have problems. David, you describe something called, and excuse my pronunciation, solitage. What is that? Oh, that's a feeling of grief when you see the environment change before you. And um, there's a new word, I can't remember, there's someone from the University of Newcastle invented it a couple of years ago. And it's a feeling of grief when you see the environment lost in front of you due to climate change. And that's the word I used when I came out from the floods. I looked, I Googled to find out what the word was, and that was the word. It's a feeling of grief when everything disappears, and that's how I feel. And I still feel that sometimes now when I see things disappear. And it's a great word. And it's not just me as a marine scientist. There's terrestrial scientists after the, the bushfires, for example. They go through it. You go up to the Great Barrier Reef and the coral reef scientists, they experience the grief when they see their corals bleach and disappear as well. When we lose our koalas on Kangaroo Island, that sense of grief. So there's a lot more of that happening, and that's because, you know, mainly because of the climate change events and there's a lot more of them now. But, you know, hopefully we can reverse a lot of the things that we're doing and we can recover and species like the seahorses we can actually increase in the wild. Have you been able to show your son a seahorse elsewhere underwater? He actually showed me his first seahorse. <laughs> he was four years old and we're snorkelling at Fly Point and he, he was a very good snorkel already at four. He goes, Dad, Dad. I'm like, what? And I turn around, look, he hands me a seahorse. <laughs> what? How? And it was a really nice gold colour one. It was only a metre of water. And he, he picked it up and he swam it over to me. I'm like, that's beautiful, son. We shouldn't be picking up the seahorses, but now you've held your first seahorse. This is pretty cool. So, yeah, at a very young age, he saw a seahorse. And then, you know, I've got another son. And then we'd go down to Little Beach Boat Ramp in Port Stephens and in a busy time in summer. And when I was doing my work, I used to take down a little clear container and I'd go pick up seahorses in the shallows, I'd put them in the container, I'd tag them, and all the kids would be watching. So then I could actually run a marine education course there and there on a jetty right talking to them, and I explained <laughs> to them why we tag them and then why I release them. And just the joy in kids seeing a seahorse, and because they're all snorkeling there, but they wouldn't see them. So to show them where they were standing and where they were swimming, what was underneath there, they were blown away. So it's, I like to educate our young ones because they're the ones that go home and tell mum and dad about, you know, we've got to look after seahorses and we can do this to help seahorses. So imagine if the survival rate of seahorses is like, you know, really high, say 50%. Our ocean would be swarming in seahorses. It would be this magical kingdom that we'd swim underwater and there'd be seahorses everywhere and that'd be like, that'd bring great joy to me. But that's probably what makes them so mysterious is that that doesn't happen. There's only 1% to 5% survival, so there aren't that many there. So when you do see one, it is a really special moment to see something that is so mythical, so rare, and to find it living in its environment is pretty special. David, thank you. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Hey, Miyuki Akiranta here from the Earshot Podcast. In our latest season, we're telling stories about remembering. And there's an intriguing episode about Sunil Badami's uncle, who was India's best-known sceptic. I've seen the sceptic eat fire, pull jeeps with hooks in his back, levitate in the air, stand on his head, buried in sand. But at the heart of the sceptic's magic was a disappearing act. I can only imagine how she slipped away in the night giving her sleeping children a last tender kiss before taking the overnight express to Madras with her lover. When Sunil pulls back the curtain of his family secrets, he uncovers a mystery whose unspeakable shadow has loomed over three generations. But he also discovers more questions. What does it mean if the greatest trick is the one our memories play on us? That's the latest episode of Earshot, Just look for us on the ABC Listen app.